Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Yes, I am so here. Not, I am different than I was last week because yesterday I splurged on too many cherry tomato plants. You're thinking, who do I know that has too many cherry tomatoes? Why, that would be Dara because I bought the yellow ones and then I just saw green sausage heirloom cherry tomatoes. Maybe they're terrible, but maybe they have such a cute name. Green sausage, come on. I want a garden full of sausages. That's ridiculous. I couldn't leave those on the shelf. So I got the yellow ones, my favorite, true wild, those Matt's wild tomatoes. They're tiny and I love them and they don't survive. You have to basically stand in the garden and eat them and I'm signed up for that. Send some children out there with a colander, get some of those things. So I have too many cherry tomatoes and as you can tell, I'm not sorry. I'm zero sorry. They're not in the ground. So now the challenge is get them all situated before, you know, before they dry out on the porch. That's always terrible. Uh, so this is, uh, you got any secrets for me? Do you bury a fish with your tomatoes? Do you do you uh, go for the, the sheep manure? Do you have secrets? I'm open. Send them, 81807. I will. And if you want to know why I'm only on cherry tomatoes, because I live in the city and squirrels are the enemy of the big tomatoes. They just spitefully go up and they take a chunk out of them. Oh, squirrels, you drive me nuts. And that's why I have to go to the farmer's market and pay real farmers for their heirloom tomatoes because I live in a world of squirrels. And also too many cherry tomatoes. Now you know everything there is to know about me except for one thing, which is that Alex Roberts is here. Do you know Alex Roberts? If you eat in the Twin Cities, you probably do. He is one of our most acclaimed, our most significant chefs in the Twin Cities. And I have acclaimed him myself. First, when he opened Restaurant Alma, I'll never forget eating there. When the first restaurant opened, it just just blew me away. Everything was so kind of, it shows up as simple food, but it's so complex within that. And then I learned that he had been working in New York City, Gramercy Tavern at Boulay and the Union Square Cafe fancy places. And then he opened Brazza. And Brazza, the rotisserie, got a location in northeast Minneapolis and one in St. Paul. I would eat there every day. And I know that maybe a couple of you actually do. It's just wholesome, simple, good food. Last uh, couple years ago, he turned Alma into an inn and a cafe. He is also Minneapolis dad of three, James Beard Award winner, two-time food and wine pick for having one of the best restaurants in the country. And he's stuck here with me for the rest of this half hour. So you got a question, you you text it or find me on the Twitter bot. I am at Dear Dara. Text us 81807. And we're going to ask Alex Roberts things because he's here. So Alex Roberts, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. It is. We have been... Uh, we have been on this in this Twin Cities food scene for a long time. Um, all right, so t- so tell me, 
a few things. What is going on in your world right now? You brought in some candles. I was un- I, I didn't expect you to bring a candle. Your your uh, wife is uh, making the things for the for the hotel. Yeah, it's a celebration of the most uh, significant mother in my world, uh, my wife, and uh, something I wanted to share. It's uh, handmade products that we feature in the hotel, but also are featured at Alchemy Fitness here in town, and they're the, the brainchild of my wife, Margot Roberts, and a big part of our lives because as a family, we work on them together. You do. So what is this? Do you, you get the fancy lemongrass because you're a chef, and then you also get it and turn it into candles? What is it? How does it all work? A little bit of that, but it's mainly sourcing great ingredients that are in the form of essential oils and plant-based oils, the highest quality natural stuff that is food great, although you wouldn't want to eat it. Uh, you know, you wouldn't want to eat a bar of soap, but of course, the ingredients in there are just delicious smelling and great for you. Oh, yeah. A lot. I know health and wellness people. I know them. I don't spend a ton of time with them, but they say that you shouldn't put things on your skin that you wouldn't eat. Yeah, Margot's uh, saying is uh, because what goes on your body goes in your body. It's true. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an organ that does stuff. Uh, <laughs> that's as far as I'm going to go. Pressure <laughs> on critic on skin. I know it's important. I don't know much more of the detail, and I'm not going to go out there. So tell me, uh, this is the, one of the things that I wanted to to talk to you about is that you have been cooking for a long time. I have been talking about food for a long time. And something I've noticed in the last year is that I feel like us food people kind of came up with the message a long time ago. And the message is, you know, eat local or eat small producer foods, eat organic, like eat food that's made in some way that's thoughtful and conscientious you know the producers are paying attention it's not just you know uh falling off falling off a factory floor somewhere you know so so eating these foods that are local or conscientiously grown in some way or other eat some plants in the mix with that and don't stress about the margins and yet even this message feels boring right that's the thing that i was talking to beth dooley at an event a couple weeks ago and i was like how do you keep the faith because the thing that, you know, we, there was a time in the 1990s where you're like, I've got revolutionary news for you. <clears throat> you know, eat basically what your great-grandparents ate. And then everyone was like, oh, my goodness, that's news. And now it's still – that's still the message. And what's news, what comes along the margins is like fad after fad after fad. You know, no, we should eat these highly processed flours. Like, no, we should eat this – um, you know, paleo, keto, some caca. Um, to me, they're all cockamamie diet schemes. Like so, um, so how do you kind of keep this very boring message? I will admit it's boring. It's, how do we keep it fresh? How do you keep it fresh? Yeah, it's a phenomenal question. I think that is probably the center of what I do for a living and what I try to bring to my home every day as a chef. Um, the relationship with food. Uh, you talked about all these different names and diets and fads, but and of course, unfortunately, like a lot of it um, gets connected to it being kind of uptight or uh, pretentious, which of course is the exact opposite of just having good food in your life to feed your family. Oh, the Portlandia cliche, right? right about the you know the the. Let me introduce you to the chicken. Like, right. I mean, it gets silly, but the reality is that whatever you call the fad, traditional food is the most important thing for our well-being. And I think that is exciting to realize that what you eat has the greatest effect on your well-being every day. And so I have a very simple equation that I use, and it's what you eat 80% of the time uh, is what informs your health, 
overall, unless you have some you know rare condition or something like that. Uh, and what you eat twenty percent of the time doesn't generally. So you know what you eat eighty percent of the time day to day. Pay attention to that, and then twenty percent of the time go nuts. You know, have have that treat, have have the triple bacon cheeseburger, have the ice cream, and have those things that feel like you know you know that you shouldn't be eating them every day because you don't feel good after eating them necessarily or they're excessive. But at the same time, any diet that says you can't have all this, you're not going to be happy with ever. Yeah, there's that. That is true. Have you noticed this? I was just thinking about this the other day that when I started out as a restaurant critic, I had never heard of fried cheese curds. And then I went to the state fair and everyone was like, you got to try these. And I did. And they're amazing. But they were still rare. I only saw them once a year at the state fair. They are everywhere now. There is, I mean, any bar menu. And they're not good anymore either because they (laughs) used to be, you know, they used to be the hand battered cheese curds at the fair. And now a lot of times on menus, they're just nuggets. They're just frozen breaded nuggets that come from the frozen breaded nugget factory. And that's what they are. Uh, am I crazy? Does it, did, are we living in a cheese curd world that didn't exist 20 years ago? I, th- I think that more and more, you know, any type of celebration food is like everyday food now. And again, nothing wrong with celebration food. I love it too. I love some good cheese curds. But if you're going to do it, they better be really good. But I think they've become kind of an everyday thing. And then we have all these versions that aren't so good. Yeah, they become a terrible everyday thing. And that's not good. All right. So you, um, in a, I'm just thinking now about how when Brasa opened, it was kind of revolutionary. It was like, I'm going to do a quick serve from the farm restaurant or from, you know, wholesome foods, kind of simply prepared. And it's been so popular. And, you know, everyone's always asking me, like, well, why aren't there 100 Brasas? Why isn't just Chipotle eyes? Why doesn't have – they ask you that more. I can see by the look on your face. <laughs> and, um, and I think that the the difficult answer is that – or the it's not a difficult answer, but the answer no one wants to hear is that it's hard to pull off, right? You can't – it's not easy to scale small farm real cooking. Yeah, the reality is is that sometimes we have a hard time – uh, supplying our two brasas uh, with local chicken 100% of the time. And so maybe 20% of the time we're buying chicken outside of our market uh, if we're short now. Again, and some things don't come from our local market, but many things do. And so the reality is that, that quality of sourcing is hard to come by. But even more so, you know, we don't have a concept that's easy to commoditize. It is a cooking concept still. We're not opening a box of frozen cheese curds and dropping them in the fryer uh, that have come on a, fr- you know, a, on a, on a frozen truck. Uh, everything we make is from scratch. And so that concept was really born from this idea that we have a menu that you could eat from every day and thrive, whether you're a child, a teenager, an adult, an older person, a pregnant uh, woman, wh- whatever it may be, uh, it's food that you can thrive of every day. So it's a very simple concept in that way, but not that easy to reproduce. And that's, I think that's hard for people to understand because, you you know, you go into – I don't know. You, you know, you go into anywhere, and <laughs> from the consumer perspective, it all looks a little bit the same. You know, Chipotle looks like Panera, looks like Brasa. Like they all kind of are the same, but they're they're very much not the same. I agree. I mean, I think that um, there are places that do it much better than others, but it is hard for the consumer to tell the difference. I mean, if you come into the back of a Brasa any given day, you're going to see collard greens piled up nearly to the ceiling, and fresh boxes that are then cleaned and washed and washed and washed, and then. Uh, steamed and then simmered again to make the finished product, um, that is a very different process than opening a can or a frozen bag. And so while reading a menu somewhere, you might see collard greens 
the way the the road to the plate is very different everywhere you go. Yeah, and it's uh, and and that commitment to having the the, <laughs> uh, the whole grains and the whole vegetables and the you know the the whole the whole critters, that's uh, you know harder harder to source. I mean, there's I I don't think that the another thing the consumer doesn't ever know how much there are these kind of behind the scenes entities that are always trying to sell you like you don't have to make chicken soup. You can here's chicken base. Like here's these uh, you know cubes and slurries and different labor saving devices and saving the money on labor is a big deal it is i mean and that's that is um that's a very challenging for all of us out here in the cooking business is that is the is the labor it takes to make great food and uh, finding people that aren't bored uh by the simple things and the repetition of it i think our profession is one that really has to embrace that repetition in the labor of making food from scratch it's it's and it's same with eating at home it's um, a big part of of my life is to Try to bring in homemade food to our home, you know, uh, at least a few times a week where we're cooking together. Uh, even the simplest things, getting the kids involved with basic things, whether it be stirring the pot or chopping things and seeing the process. Because I think if they don't connect with the, the basic part of, of cooking food from scratch, they're not necessarily going to identify with it being important when they get older. Yeah, that's been a big part of my life. You and I have kids uh, around the same age. Your oldest is 12. My oldest is 12. And it's I've been working all year on getting the kids to cook once a month. They each of them is responsible for dinner once a month. It started off as a crock pot project. It's kind of broadened because they don't always want to make things in the crock pot. I thought that that would be the easiest thing. One of the things that's been most eye opening about this is the kids' uh, own interests, their own indifference to things I think are really neat. I got them to make popovers, and they were just like. Who, why do people like popovers? This is just bread. Why did we go? <laughs> I was just like, how could you say that? Um, but <laughs> they found it. They were thought they find the whole thing indifferent to preposterous. They were like, why did you make such a fuss out of this? It's like, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> it's hard. Like nostalgic things and comfort food are, are are individual, right? So what might be one for you is not for them yet. Exactly, is, is a really tricky one. And I, I think the best way in for food with kids is something that you know that you make well that your kids love, and then sometimes even when they go out, they don't like it as much. So something as simple as scrambled eggs. My kids are always like, "Your scrambled eggs taste better than when we have them out." And so why? They ask a question. I said, "Well, I'll answer that question by making it with you." So simple things like that, I think, is the best way. And other than my relationship with food and kind of the nostalgia that I have, I think we all grow up with different, different connecting points with that emotional. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't really grow up eating chili. I mean, I guess we would have it sometimes, but we started doing uh, Grant Ackett's mom's chili. It was in food and wine, and I put it up on the website. Oh, must have been two years ago at this point. And that's the that's the recipe that we use, and the, and it's delightfully made my children sort of chili snobs. They're like, mm. this is not as good as Grant Ackett's mom's, chili, which is really just a dump and stir recipe. It's just a couple cans and and a, you know you saute an onion with some spices. It's a it's a very basic you know ground beef, all American pinto bean chili, but it's uh, it's good and it's good to have that. It's I think that one of the things that I hear from when I talk about this with with other people is that. You know, it's a it's a hassle to have kids. They don't um, in the kitchen. They don't do it as fast as you do. But you you have to, I think, make that you have to make that effort because otherwise, uh, I don't know. They got to start somewhere. Got to start somewhere, and otherwise, 
how are they going to connect with the ingredients and be familiar with them and, and value them? I think what we eat when we're young is what we go to when we're older, especially when we leave our homes, we become adults, and we go back to what we're familiar with. And so that little bit of sacrifice and the annoyance of having kids next to you being really slow and messy, I think, is worth it. To, it's totally to, to teach worth them. it. But you have to – I think you have to know that going in. That's what I would say. If you're listening to this and you're like, you don't know, my kid is going to you know, try to get a tomato in the pot from across the room like a basketball, it's like just expect it. Like that's – developmentally appropriate, <laughs> not for a 35-year-old woman, but for, for an 11-year-old. Like that's yeah, make the cleanup fun. I mean, in a restaurant, stuff falls on the floor, and we just sweep it up. So why can't you do that at home? I mean, just make that part of the process and don't let the kids sneak out of it. That's my thing is that then we have to sweep up together. If we don't want to be uptight while we're making it, then we just have and you know, and worry about things going on the floor. So we just clean up together, and that's fun too. It is. It's all fun. Okay. So um, what else is go? we should talk about what's going on at Barasa and uh, Alma? So people that don't know, how has it been at Alma making the transition from restaurant to two restaurants and a hotel? The hotel seems like a, like a different skill set, but is it? You know, the hotel actually, I mean, it requires some very different resources and, and um, day-to-day kind of, you know, rituals and patterns that we that a restaurant doesn't have. But in a way, uh, if you think about a hotel guest checking in, the number of, of touches or interactions with a hotel guest are, are fewer than a restaurant guest. You know, you might, you know, by the time a restaurant guest comes in or leaves the restaurant, you may be visit that table 13 times or between the hellos and the goodbyes and everything. And a hotel guest can be sometimes just a few because a person is just coming to stay and they're leaving and they're not even, you know, staying in the restaurant necessarily. And so in some ways it's... Um, has its different challenges, but it's not as intense as the restaurant. So in some ways, um, it's been very easy. It has. Oh, I'm su- surprised. So would you tell other restaurant people, yeah, open an inn, put some rooms over your restaurant? Well, it depends if you want to be the night watchman like myself. I, I'm the guy that uh, is uh, on the, has to go in if there's some problem overnight. And so that's at, at this scale. doesn't happen very often at all, but I get that call sometimes, or I share that with some of my employees, and we kind of take it take turns with it. But very few problems at night. People are sleeping most of the time and there's no issues. But every once in a while, someone loses their key and you've got to, you get a call and you've got to go help that person out. So because we're not staffed 24 hours a day. Oh, you're not. That was seven rooms. That economic model doesn't work. Oh, and people are, and guests are okay with that. So far, so good. Oh, interesting. I, I think it has more in common with small inns across the world. There's a lot of those, you know, a lot of versions like that. We're just used to bigger hotels in our country. At least we have been for a while. We are. We're used to bigger hotels. We're used to people pushing carts with tiny shampoos. We're, we're used to the whole thing. But you didn't replicate all of that. Like you don't have, you know, chambermaids and carts and. We do have a cart. We, we, have, we have one housekeeping cart for seven rooms, and we had, we do have a housekeeper. We have a full time and a part time person, and well, actually two part time people, and that they're they're specialists. That's what they do, and um, one has a hotel background and brings in all that knowledge of making a perfect bed and things like that were that I didn't have the skill set for. I don't have that skill set. I don't make perfect <laughs> beds in my house. They don't teach that in cooking school. Yeah. No one at the French Culinary Institute is like, and now <laughs> your pillow is not going to fall out of the pillowcase. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so it's been a great, I mean, really it's been a, a great expression of hospitality. I didn't have the idea until I, I was able to purchase the building after being in the building for many years as a tenant and uh, being in this big open space on the corner uh, with open windows on all sides and very high ceilings. It was an old firehouse. Uh, I said, this would be a great space for something different than what I assume would be office space or something, you know. And 
and so we pursued this idea, and it took a long time, but it really is um, a wonderful expression of hospitality. And what's, what's interesting about it is people say, oh, it feels so different. You have a restaurant down below and rooms upstairs. I'm like, well, isn't that all of hotels, I ask people? And I think what it is is that there's something about the lack of uh, distance, you know, a shorter distance between everything, and it feels much more intimate, as well as the restaurant below is filled with locals. And so when you're visiting a hotel normally, you know, you're out of town, it's filled with people who aren't from there. But in oh, this yeah, case, and it's got the cookie-cutter menu. Yeah. It's a filet mignon and some kind of salmon, and it's a place that people don't really go to unless they're trapped in the hotel. <laughs> so. Yeah. so usually, you know, a guest will be staying, and maybe they don't even know about the restaurant. They just read about the hotel. And there's all these people who are passionate regulars about the restaurant sitting at the bar and talking about their experience and talking about the Twin Cities, and that's a pretty rich experience for people. So a lot of a lot of international uh, guests coming in from all over the world who visit Twin Cities. Oh, and that's because you're close to the universe, right? Because they have so many important scholars and uh, visitors coming in all the time. So uh, another question I had, I haven't gotten to ask you this since you opened the cafe. So the cafe, if people don't know, Restaurant Alma itself has always been quite fine, lovely, you know, fancy-ish dining. Uh, and then you open this cafe, which is a little more casual. Has having the – and I kind of like the cafe more right now. It's Maybe it's my style of life where you kind of just go and get some potatoes and a cocktail and a chicken or the tartine, all these things. And it's just more more um, relaxed. But I was kind of looking at your menus and thinking, is it – has it made sourcing easier? Because you can now take the – you know, get a lot of beef and take the fine piece and put it in the, uh, you know, finer restaurant and take the more, you know, everyday pieces and get them in the cafe. Does that, is it making your life easier that way? I don't know. With having a whole other restaurant that is open all day, I wouldn't say in any way it's no, not easier. Really but, yeah, there is some of these efficiencies that are that are created by the crossover and, and use of ingredients, which is really cool. And and uh, something I was always inspired by, by Gramercy Tavern that had a tavern menu, this, this casual menu in front, and then the more you know, fine dining prefix menu in the back that celebrated even more expensive ingredients and things like that that were special. So kind of doing a similar thing is, is great as a chef. It's a great way to express different types of cooking from, you know, the everyday fried potatoes to and, uh, and bread and salads to more uh, expression of something that's you're only going to have once in a while, the special dinner at the restaurant side. And is it has the, has the cafe cannibalized the the fine dining customers, or is it more just people are kind of going to the one that fits the experience they want? You know, just having one year under our belt, we're trying to determine that right now and see if we have, you know, the concept right. The idea is that I believe that, you know, a, a restaurant concept kind of becomes its own living, breathing thing. And so the restaurant took a couple, you know, about two and a half years to become what it is now, and the cafe is still becoming what it's going to be. And so being able to look back, on the first year, we learn a little bit, but without anything to compare it to, uh, it's the second year now that we can really learn from and see, hey, is this, is this taking away from the restaurant or, um, or is it adding, you know, the differentiation, creating an opportunity for the restaurant to be even you know, more popular because it's so different than the cafe. So we're learning about it, and they're, they're a great complement to each other. Yeah, it's it's you've got you've got the you've got like the full the full house in your hand now, right? You've got brasa for the for the quick serve, you've got the cafe for kind of casual, and then you've got the the lovely fine Alma. <laughs> All right, so I cannot seem to get into our text line. I am very sad about that. I'll see uh, if questions are coming in on the Twitter bot. Uh, so 
I don't have any secrets. I have no secrets as a chef, so anybody who wants uh, any any advice on cooking or recipes, I'm happy to take any question. <laughs> I'll give you the restaurant version. All right. So I've got one question, which is, uh, you know, what are, what do you see the future of the Twin Cities coming up as? What do you think the food is going? I feel like you've you've been doing this for a while. I've been doing this for a while. What do you think is is coming next? Yeah, you knew me when I had no gray hair, I think, and I think the word wonderkin was used about a bowl of soup that I made, and now I'm <laughs> sitting across from you here with a, with a white beard. And an empire. Yeah, empire. small, very small empire. Um, the future of food, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that people, people are eating differently, um, concepts that are uh, not able to scale to delivery and takeout, I think, are seem to be suffering a little bit. Um, so having food that's accessible from many different, you know, in many different channels, I think is really good. Um, but also I think places that create an experience, you know, that there will always be people going out to celebrate and not getting away from that to do something special that people really come away with a feeling from a feeling of being taken care of by a place with a unique style. So whether that be restaurant Alma or a spoon and stable or a grand cafe or young Joni or, you know, uh, Tilia uh, or a birch. There's so many different versions of excellence in our town. We just saw that with the Beard Awards, right? With uh, with multiple nominees, four nominees, and one in a national category, and, and three local people uh, here from Minneapolis being nominated, and one winner, of course, Gavin this year. Um, it's extraordinary to see that possibility continue and thrive. So I hope that we will always have a future there. But also, I think more things like Barasa are needed because people are cooking less. So experiences and um and, and things to kind of serve the not cooking at home market. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think so. I don't. It doesn't look like people are necessarily cooking that much more when they do these kind of bowls and stuff. It seems like people are cooking less, and so people want really quick and good options because they know that a lot of the food that when you go out over time, people gain a lot of weight. That you know, restaurant food is richer than you might cook at home, and people know that. They know that when they eat out, they Do they know? They, they, they figure it out after a, after a decade? Imagine the mirror tells you at some point. <laughs> but I think options that, that don't always um, lead to that outcome, you know, some more things that, are, that you can find that balance with, a balanced approach, I think, is, is a good. I was talking to Christopher Kimball, the Milk Street guy, the other day, and he was saying that, uh, that the thing that he's seen most in his, his esteemed career is that there's no more, like, Central American, not Central American, uh, core like American cuisine identity. Like people are just all over the place. Everyone kind of grew up differently and come, you know, gets their information from a myriad of sources, and then it ends up at so many places. And that's what he's seen is that it's uh, like nobody, not nobody, but people don't have that middle of the plate feeling of like meatloaf, pork chop. Like it's not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's uh, it's kind of up for grabs as our country's gotten more and more diverse, which is a great thing. And I think the food that you see in menus, the the seasonings, the flavor profiles are, are more and more eclectic. So, you know, our idea of what is, you know, kind of regionally inspired or, or, or food that honors traditions uh, of local communities, you know, all of a sudden we really feel that um, flavors in our cooking at the restaurant might include uh, Southeast Asian, right? We have a huge... Uh, Hmong community here, and so having food that reflects those flavors is as much as American as anything else. And I think that we really um, have embraced that as a restaurant. And so that was very different, I think, years ago, where people, like you said, it was meat and potatoes, and traditional was what reflected maybe the dominant ethnic group that migrated here first, but not everybody since. And that's changing, which I think is cool. But it is it is a little confusing as what is what is American food, what is 
Yeah, what is it? What, what will it be it? for yeah. our, our kids? We're going to find out. Uh, hopefully they'll be cooking it for us. <laughs> All right. Well, Alex Roberts from Brasa and Alma, thank you so much for giving us a bunch of time this morning. I really appreciate it. Really admire your work. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you. Hey, when we come back, we're going to call the West Coast and we're going to talk about Gamay with Michelle Batista. Dara here. All right. We're checking in with the West Coast. I've got Michelle Batista. She is one of the people behind the I Love Gamay Festival. And I met her at that big women's conference that was in town, Women Chefs and Restaurateurs, which is so fun. And I love the idea of a Gamay Festival. So I thought we'd just check in with her. Michelle, thanks for taking time out of your busy kid life this morning. <laughs> thanks for having me on. Oh, so all right. So what tell us tell the people. What Gamay, what is it? It's a red wine. It's a Yeah, it's a red wine. I mean that's the simplest way to talk about <laughs> it. But um you know, Gamay for I'm well, first of all, let me just say I'm always surprised um that people don't know about it. And I think I was telling you that when I was in when I met you in Minneapolis, I went to a wine shop and they were closing in five minutes and I went up and I said Where's the gamay? And the guy looked at me and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then he looked at the girl next to him and he said, do you know if we have gamay? And she said, I don't know what you talk about. I don't know what you're talking about. And I thought, this is crazy that people don't know about this wine. Um, but, you know, it's the underdog. And um, so in Burgundy, the, the birthplace of Pinot, you had, there's a long history of, of Burgundy being this very exclusive wine that's a very exclusive grape and Gamay was produced there as well and it sort of got shunned by the Duke you know hundreds of years ago Um, and it moved to the Beaujolais and so you still have Gamay is grown in the Beaujolais still to this day and it's a really lovely grape and it sort of has Um, its its reputation as it's a it's a workhorse uh, it's rustic some people really like it it gets a reputation of being sort of fleshy and like if you like earthy bread, then you're going to like Gamay, like you're a real person who likes to embrace <laughs> rusticity in life. Like that's a, that's the Gamay, the Gamay thing. And then a bunch of people in Oregon planted it. Yeah. So it's a, I mean, it's a typically known as a cold weather grape. It grows really well in, um, it's why it grows really well here. It's why it grows really well in the Beaujolais, um, it likes that climate. It's easy to grow. It's hardy. I mean, to your point about rusticity, um, it can weather the storms a bit. Um, so it's it's always, it sort of always comes out on top. Um, and so I think that that's the reason that we're growing and planting more and more gamay in the state of Oregon, which is really exciting, which is why this festival was birthed. This is only its second year. But essentially, myself and a wine, a two winemakers got together and just said, everybody's talking about Pinot all the time. And there's a huge international Pinot conference here, but what about this beautiful Gamay grape? Um, And it really wasn't planted until the eighties by Myron Redford, who owned Amity Vineyards at the time. And over the years, it's sort of been under the radar, but all of it gets snatched up. So there, I mean, we need more, of the grape planted in the state, the fruit is gone. And now people are scrambling to find it as it sort of rises to the top again. And it's become a little bit trendy. I love that you have the festival. It's the very simple. I love Gamay. That's such a good, (laughs) always looking for, you know, after Pinot Noir got popular or, you know, it's always been popular, but when it got popular in America, 
it got so expensive. And so we yes. need more more democratic wine for the people. Yeah, and then that's exactly what it is. It's approachable. It's affordable. It's super fun to drink. It's a great value. And it goes with food. I mean, it. so many people would say that Gamay, like Gamay goes with all food. It, there's there's a breadth of Gamay um, that allows there to be such a variety. And I think that that's what I really enjoy about it is this variety of Gamay. And because I'm a person that's very into food and work in food, I'm always looking for wines that pair well with food um, easily. And so I think that that's the, that's the big talking point for Gamay, especially in the state of Oregon, as we're producing more and more food out of the state and as restaurants get more and more popular and more and more foodies, quote unquote, um, are here. All right. So it's coming up. It's May 20th to 23rd in Portland. And I'm going to make a personal goal of somehow getting on an I Love Gamay festival or at least a dinner here (laughs) in Minnesota at some point because it's groovy. I think it's fun. We need to have more fun and, uh, do more things that, would that be didn't so see coming. Fun. Yeah, let's do that. Let's bring Gam- let's bring Gamay to Minnesota. I'm into it. All right. So the festival is I Love Gamay. You got the very good website of www.ilovegamay.com. If people want to go on and learn about why Gamay is happening in Oregon, it's very cool. And Michelle, thank you. I know you got a busy mom morning, so I'll let you go to that. <laughs> but uh, it's you. good to hear your voice. Yeah, I'm just excited to be on with you. You know I loved you at first sight. <laughs> yeah, we have. It's good to have. Uh, good to meet people. It's good to get out of your box, and then you learn about things like Gamay. All right, you have a good day, you you wonderful wine person, you. And for all the right, hope to see you guys there. All right, when I come back, we're going to go through recipes. I put together a whole gallery of recipes about Mr. Alex Roberts. He has all kinds of interesting things on the web. I gathered them. Oh, and we finally have a Vanity Earl. I know you were just like. We can't just have the recipes everywhere, higgledy piggledy. Well, now everything is at WCCO uh, radio.com slash Dara. That's all. That's all you have to remember. WCCO radio.com slash Dara. That's it going forward. We're going to have this forever. When we come back, we'll talk about it. In honor of having Alex Roberts on the show, I thought it would be fun to get his recipes up so you can make a Mother's Day feast. Number five. Restaurant Alma's Chicken Liver Toasts. Just, just a puree. It's so good. These are up at WCCORadio.com slash Dara. D-A-R-A. I love that we have that. WCCORadio.com slash Dara. I'm so happy. We have that. We missed it. I missed it. Number four, Restaurant Alma's Red Roast Beet and Grapefruit Salad. It's so Alma to put the roast beets and the grapefruits together. Very easy, but very surprising. Brasa's cilantro lime sauce. You're going to say, oh, my goodness, did they actually give out that recipe? Yeah, years ago. It's just been sitting up on the Internet. But now you can find it at WCCORadio.com slash Dara. Number two, the famous Alma tomato and bread soup. One of the most delicious dishes in the Twin Cities. It's so good. If you've never had if you think like all tomato soup's the same. Nope, it is not. And number one. You could make this for your mom. You could start right now. The almond plum cake. It is a good, good, just a lot of almond paste. Whatever fruit, if you can't find good plums, then you can make it with cherries, apricots, all kinds of different things. But it's a simple cake that is delicious, and it is up 
at the new recipe site that we will now use forever, wccoradio.com slash Dara. And that is my Mother's Day gift to myself. I'll probably make some of that for tomorrow. All right, so I only have a few minutes left. Uh, I got a quick question. Let's see, budget Mother's Day ideas. Cooking. Cooking is always a budget. Pancakes are probably the most budget-friendly thing you can make. Remember we did Dutch Babies a few years, a few weeks ago? Uh, that is up at the gallery, and that's just kind of a, a liquidy batter that you put in a skillet and bake in the oven. So easy. So that's my budget. My budget idea is that you could cook or make a little picnic for your mom. She would love that. She just wants to spend time with you. All right, so next week I have... I don't know if you've been following the food press, but my goodness, campfire and backyard cooking, they are just everything right now. Everybody wants you to go in your backyard and just sit around and look at your fire, not look at your phone. That's what's on trend. So we're going to have authors of one of the new camping books to talk about how they do it. And yes, she is one of those mason jar people because it's 2018 You've got to have your mason jars. Um, I like to, I've been sending my kids to school with mason jars. That's how 2018 it is in their lunch boxes. Uh, they're very good. Our grandparents were right. They're a useful item. All right. So, till next week, I hope you have the happiest possible Mother's Day. May all your macaroni stay glued to your picture frames. And I will see you here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.